This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall ear. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Thank you, Jared. I wanna to talk today a little bit about the, uh, what's called the Pareto's Law or Pareto's Principle. I feel like I talk about it a lot, but I'm not sure how much I talk about it here in the pulpit. I know I mention it a lot just in staff life, but the idea here is that when you're having a lot of issues, a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems, chances are they're only coming from a very few uh, uh, effects. So the idea is many effects, I should say, come from only a few causes. So 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So if you're seeing a lot of problems going on, chances are they're all coming from the same place, the same places. Uh, let me give you this illustration to help you understand it. Think of, uh, about this. If you were on an assembly line to make widgets, and uh, so you're there at your station, you're ready to do your thing, and you're the inspector, you inspect and be sure the widgets are okay, and all of a sudden widgets are coming down the line, and they're not stamped right, and so then they're not painted right, and, and they don't fit the other widgets, and, and the holes aren't quite in the right place. So they got all of these problems with this widget, and, and turns out, when you do the investigation, what happened is one guy way down the assembly line fell asleep, and he didn't pull his stamping lever all the way, which didn't stamp the widget right, so when it got to the paint station, it didn't paint right. When it got to the hole drilling place, it didn't drill the hole. You get the idea. So you had one problem with many many different outcomes. That's Pareto's principle. And it's true for a lot of areas of life. Like, okay, let's find the common sources of issue. Well, I can find probably no more stark example of Pareto's principle than the fall of mankind, sin coming into the world, and all of the effects that sin has brought our way. Sin has had massive implications. And it's had massive implications in your life. I mean, probably every day this week, you experienced some result, some effect because of the fall of mankind. Now, I wanna be straight up with you this morning and tell you, today, I'm after your heart. Because here's the deal. As you experience life and the difficulties and the frustrations as a result of the fall, when those things happen to you, you're gonna go for hope and help someplace. You will. 
and chances are you're gonna go to the most influential person in your life for hope and help. And do you know who the most influential person in your life is? It's you. <laughs> because no one talks to you as much as you talk to you. And in those moments of frustration when the effects of sin are occurring, you're gonna tell yourself to go someplace for hope and someplace for help. And I wanna say, there's a place where you can go. There's a place where we can go. Now, I'm gonna hold off on all of that. The big idea is gonna come at the end of the message. So where's our hope? We're gonna get to that. But first, let's talk about kind of all of the implications and ramifications of the fall. So we have this text in front of us, Genesis 3, 14 through 19, and the Lord addresses the serpent, then the woman, then the man. But what is revealed in this text really shows us how much brokenness came from sin. And uh, I, I was reading a book and Drew pointed me to this book. It's called Heaven is a Place on Earth by Dr. Um, Michael Whitten, Whitmer. There it is. He wrote it for me. So I had it wrong in the first service. So he said, I'm going to write it for you so you get it right this time. But anyway, Dr. Whitmer uh, wrote this book called uh, Heaven is a Place on Earth. But in there is a really helpful construct to understand this. We're going to talk about the effects of the fall and how they relate to us every day. So I'll write this down first. Uh, my relationship with creation. So how has the fall impacted me? Well, it's impacted our relationship with creation. So think about you and the world that God has created. Now there is a rift in that relationship between you and creation. There's a brokenness that is there. And we see this in the text. In fact, uh, let your eyeballs fall on verse number 17. So this is four, uh, sorry, 317, which says this. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and uh, you shall eat the plants and you should eat the plants of the field. So the idea here is now uh, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. And particularly, he's talking about thorns, he's talking about thistles, and how it, it, the good stuff is gonna be really hard to grow. But the bad stuff, man, the bad stuff's gonna grow really easily and really well. And if you want a good, vivid illustration of that, all you have to do is drive around this time of the year and check out the dandelions. I mean, even driving in today, I'm like, ooh, that's, that guy has a lot of dandelions in his yard. <laughs> and I have to, I have, to like have spring green come and spray and, and work and labor if writing that little segue thing really is work. But anyway, they, they'll come and they'll spray to be able to keep out the dandelions. And even then, yesterday, I'm in some of our you know, mulch and I'm trying to clear out the dandelions that have grown. There's a lot of them just that quickly. You ever try to pull a dandelion? I mean, they are like deep and their roots are thick and they're hard to pull up because the bad stuff grows so naturally, but the good stuff is so hard to grow. And that's, that's what the curse has brought. By the way, uh, if you hate your job, and most guys I talk to, they say they hate their job. If, they hate, if you hate your job, you have Adam to thank for that. Because it says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. Work is hard and laborious because of the fall. But thorns and thistles and weeds, that's only part of the effect that the fall had on creation. Paul reveals more in Romans chapter eight when he says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth 
comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So where Moses put it, cursed is the ground because of you, Paul comes along and says, no, it's subjected to futility. It's in the bondage to corruption. And it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. And we see the groaning. We see it in hurricanes. And we see it in uh, tsunamis. And we see it in disease and death and illness because death didn't come until Adam sinned. Then Adam sinned, and now creation seems to be trying to kill us at times with the disease and all that's going on. And have you ever been impacted by creation? Have you ever been impacted by disaster and disease? I mean, just two weeks ago, we had an F2 tornado land right across the street, and that thing tore through and tore through some of your houses or really close to it. So we as a church experience firsthand the effects of the fall. And if I were to ask this church this morning, hey, if you've ever been impacted by cancer, maybe you or someone in your life has experienced cancer, who wouldn't have their hand raised? My wife has had to fight two bouts of melanoma. Church, creation is broken and we feel it. The world is groaning. And by the way, this is how we answer people who say, well, if God is so good, why is there suffering in the world? Well, there's suffering because the world is broken, and the world is broken because there was sin. And remember, we were in the garden with Adam. We had a part in that. Now I believe in a sovereign God as a control of all things. I believe he's got a master plan for our good and his glory, but a lot of the suffering is a result of living in a sin-cursed world. But here's my question for you. Now listen, you have experienced the trauma, the difficulty of living in a broken creation. Maybe spend someone you love gets cancer and dies. Maybe it's been a traumatic, disastrous, natural occurrence whatever it has been, you looked for hope somewhere. You told your heart to go someplace for hope. Where was it? The fall has affected our relationship with creation. Write this down as well. The fall has affected my relationship with others, my relationship with other people. So yes, there's some separation between you and creation now that the fall has happened. There's also some separation and difficulty and strife between you and other people. It's another effect of the fall, my relationship with others. You can go ahead and throw that, yeah, there we go, that image on the screen. So I want you to see this right from the text. Look in verse number 16 of Genesis chapter three. This is where this is found, verse number 16. It's on the curse to the woman. He said this, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
And then he says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what we're seeing here now is pain entering on all the family relationships. Children are brought into the world, but only through a massive amount of pain, which can cause some resentment. And maybe you'd say, well, I don't resent my children. Oh, yeah? Have you ever looked at one of them and said, you better shape up. It took me 14 hours to deliver you. (laughs) But there's this phrase here in the text that we need to look at a little bit. And probably in this room, even though several of us carry the ESV, I preach from the ESV. If you have an older ESV, this is gonna read a little different because it says at the end of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What you might have, if you have an older ESV, is your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So that is actually what the Hebrew says. But what does that actually mean that your desire will be for your husband? That kind of sounds like you know, the wives are just wanting to be with their husbands, but the husbands are gonna say, baby, I'm roll over you, I'm over you. And is that what's going on here? Well, uh, it's, it's a hard phrase to translate and to get right because it's not used very often. In fact, only used twice in all of Hebrew antiquity. And so we only have two places where this is used to determine what does that actually mean. Now, fortunately for us, the other place it's used is in Genesis chapter four. And I want you to see this with me. This is in the story of Cain and Abel, and this is God's warning on Cain in verse number seven of Genesis four. And look at it here. It helps give us some clarity. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door door. Now look at the phrase. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See how similar that is? There's no question there that sin wants to rule over Cain, but Cain has to rule over sin. And so that being the case, we can go back and say that's what uh, Moses meant when he wrote that in uh, verse 17. That, that is uh, her, she, her desire, or 16. Her desire will be to rule over her husband, but he will rule over her. Now, The other thing to note here is that word rule is actually harshly rule, harshly rule. And so what you have going on is some some, some real difficulty, real difficulty in marriage relationships. This is the point. So no matter what all that means, clearly what Moses is trying to tell us is that there's gonna be conflict now between a husband and a wife. MacArthur puts it this way. Just as the woman and her seed will engage in a war with the serpent, Satan and his seed, because of uh, sin and the curse, the man and the woman will face struggles in their own relationship. Sin has turned the harmonious system of God-ordained roles into distasteful struggles of self-will. And I'm told that sometimes happens in the marriage at redemption. Rumor has it. But the entrance of sin didn't just impact the husband and wife relationship. Give it a few verses, and we're gonna see brother-to-brother relationship is massively strained to the point of murder. And James reveals this to us, James chapter four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All interpersonal conflict comes from sin. So this one sin in the garden, man, has impacted us, and none of it hits closer than that relationship of husband and wife. In fact, it's one of the most dangerous calls a police officer can get, domestic disturbance. Way too many police officers are killed responding to a domestic disturbance call. When a family conflict turns violent, it's very, very dangerous. It's estimated that more than 10 million victims, uh, there are more than 10 million victims of domestic abuse every year. 10 million victims of domestic abuse every year. That's a lot of people getting abused. And praise God it doesn't happen in the church. Or does it? Or has it? And unfortunately, historically, the church has done a very bad job of handling domestic abuse. And we haven't defined it rightly, and we've passed it off, and we've covered it up, and we've done all kinds of things that, and listen, it's tricky. It is very, very tricky, because there's a lot of people who are falsely accused of abuse. How do you fight and work and get through all of that? Well, all I want to say is that we want to help. We desire to help. Maybe it hasn't gotten to that point in your relationship, but, it, but how many of us have not experienced strife in a marriage? And where do you go? What do you do? I mean, your heart's going to tell you to go someplace. You're going to look for hope somewhere. What are you going to Google? What books are you going to pick up to try to fix this marriage that's broken? Where's your hope really when it comes to these things? Well, I want to tell you where to place your hope, but I'm going to tell you at the end of the service. Let's look at this. We got relationship with others. We also have this, how sin has affected my relationship with myself. Now, don't get nervous. Let me unpack this for you as we look carefully at the text. And uh, what I want to do is uh, take a closer look here and uh, go back to chapter 3, and I want you to look in verse number 7, chapter 3 and verse number 7. Uh, so uh, we looked at this uh, all along the way here, but I want to show this to you again. And so man ascends, and then we have this in verse number 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's going on here? Well, this is for sure shame. And it looks in the text like it was pretty immediate. They bite the fruit and they feel shame. Now we know it's shame because of this. Look back at the end of chapter two in verse 25 when it says, and the woman and the wife were both naked and they were not ashamed, but now they see their nakedness, so therefore they are ashamed. And shame comes into play. Has shame impacted you? Have you felt ashamed before? I remember the very first time I ever felt ashamed. In fact, it is probably my earliest memory that I can, I can muster up in my mind. The very first thing I remember is feeling shame. 
Now, what happened was we were, my family was visiting another uh, family, and they had a little girl, and she was about my age, and I was young, man. I was maybe two and a half, three years old, so just a little, little toddler, cute as a dickens, I'll tell you that, man. I was a cute little kid. And, uh, I mean, you know, this doesn't happen, just, you know, it has to, you know, like, start along the way, and then you get to, anyway, so the toddler, I was a toddler, and, uh, um, you know, I was always taught, you obey your parents, obey your parents, obey your parents, and so I really felt strongly, when mom says to do something, you do it, and so uh, the little girl was riding around this little riding toy, and her mom said, hey, get off that toy, and, and she didn't, and I'm like, that's not right, you get off the toy, so I went and I smacked her in the back, and she started to cry, and I felt shame right away. And mom said, Jamie, what are you doing? And I felt shame right away for all that. I still feel shame right now, even telling you the story. I want to find her. I want to call her. I want to ask her to forgive me for smacking her. I mean, you know, it's just it's real. You feel that, that, that shame, and it's there. And, and the shame is quickly followed by something else. And that shame is quickly followed by guilt, right? Because look at, look at the next verse. So you have that verse where, um, uh, they feel that, and then verse number seven, and then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. This is now two, sorry, three, eight, uh, walking in the garden with the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Why? Because they were guilty. Shame and guilt. You know you've been there. You know you felt shame for your own sin and guilt, and guilt is hugely impactful to your life. It is massively impactful to your life. Statistics say that um, 91% of uh, people who experience the compulsive uh, disorder, 91% obsessive compulsive, you know, they wash their hands all the time or whatever, 91%, 91% say that's really coming from guilt. I've had this in the counseling room. I've had people who've struggled with this area and you talk to them and they'll say, yeah, because you know, I, just, I, I just felt so bad because if I had some, some illness on my hand and I went and I shook somebody else's hand and they got that illness and then they passed it on and someone died from this illness, it really came from me. So I gotta be sure I don't pass on any illness. It's guilt that drives that. In fact, guilt that is left undealt with can lead to various mental health Conditions, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And when you feel guilt, you'll do something with it. what they do? It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, it was the serpent. I don't want to feel guilty, it's not my fault or we downplay it, or something happens. Something else came about that affects us personally every day in the fall of man. Another effect from this one cause here is Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You have a sin nature now. And you know this, you didn't have to teach your kids to lie. They knew how to do that right away. Where'd you get that cookie? I don't know. Sin nature, it's in us to sin. We sin because we're sinners. 
David knew about it. David said this in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, not the act of conception, that wasn't sinful for David, but the idea was that it was in sin, like he was brought in sin because he has this sin nature. And think about the vicious cycle of all of that. We have a sin nature, so we're sinners, and what do sinners do? They sin, and because of our sin, we feel guilt and shame, and then to make ourselves feel better, we'll go to something else, and then we'll sin because we have a sin nature, and because we sin, then we feel, and it just goes on and on and on and on, and when you're in the throes of all of that, you're gonna tell your heart to go to someplace. What do you do with the guilt and the shame? How about this? Where's your hope for victory over sin? Can I really get better? Can I really conquer this sin? Can we all just admit right now that the typical place our heart goes, one of several places, we either do this, we either say we put our hope in the one day version of ourselves that's gonna conquer this sin. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna nail this. I'm gonna have victory over this. Or, Or we can do that. Or like so many people, we can downplay it or pass it off. So, sin has affected my relationship with creation, my relationship with others, my relationship with myself. Also this, my relationship with God was impacted because of sin. My relationship with God. So yeah, there's a distance now. There's a brokenness between us and creation. There's a brokenness between us and others. There's a brokenness between us and ourselves and a brokenness between us and God. And we read it once, but let's hit it again. Three, verse number eight, three, eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. First of all, can you imagine before the fall being in the perfect garden? You like to take walks in beautiful gardens, like go to the botanical center, and it's just beautiful there, and according to his very first date, was at the Botanical Center in Des Moines, Iowa. And um, I won her heart by singing love songs to her. And I won't sing it, I promise. It's not the right one. But I, I, I sang like Surrey from Oklahoma and all of that. And it was so sweet. And she knew then she was gonna marry me. I mean, that was all she needed. That was <laughs> anyway, do you love walking like in the garden in a beautiful creation? So here is God coming down to walk in the cool of the day and where we're sitting out on our porch. I just had mowed the lawn last night so the lawn looked great and we're sitting in the cool of the evening together, just so nice. And they did it with God. But now, because of sin, they hid themselves among the trees, separated from God. Do you know that for the Hebrews, death really means separation? See, we tend to think about death and we tend to think to to cease to exist. When you die, you cease to exist. It was not at all the Hebrew concept of death. For the Hebrew, it was separation. When you die physically, you're separated, your soul is separated from your body. And in Revelation, it talks about a second death. And that second death is when unbelievers are put in hell where God is not separated their soul from God. That's the second death. 
And so what you have here really is the death of something, the death of the most precious thing in the universe, closeness with God. And now instead of closeness with God, there is separation from God. And that died in man that day, and it remains dead in most men today. And whether or not they know what or understand it, most people walking around feel the effects of that death, that closeness with God, because Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Do you know this? All men long for something beyond. They long for something greater than. They long for something eternal. And they try to fill it with so many other things. And most men walk about in some form of disappointment and discouragement because nothing else works but God. And even believers can experience this separation, this frustration as our hearts turn away from God because scripture tells us to draw near to God. Well, if we can draw near to an omnipresent God, there must be some sense that we can draw away from an omnipresent God, and there is. Jeremiah 17 says that the cursed, their hearts turned away from God. Have you experienced that? Here's God and his plan and what he wants but your heart wanted something else, so it turned away from God. And then there was distance between you and God. What do you do when you experience that distance? What do you do? What do you do when your sin puts distance between you and God? Well, I, I wonder, if I can be honest, how many would even notice? Um, my friend, uh, dear, dear friend, he's a pastor in Washington State. His name is Jeff, Jeff Pernsteiner, and I grew up together. Uh, he had this quote in a sermon years ago, and I, I love it, and so I use it from time to time, but I think he really nails it here where he says this, unfortunately for many of us, God is distant, and we are okay with that. We are not seeing God work in fresh and powerful ways, and we find that acceptable, perhaps because it's normal. I sincerely believe that one of the greatest enemies of Christianity today is complacency. Where are you and God today? And when you feel that distance, where do you go? What do you tell your heart? How do you fix it? Well, I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the answer for that problem. In fact, I believe that Jesus is the answer for all those problems. Now, here's the deal. Had I started out the sermon, I said, Jesus is the answer to all the problems of your life. If I had said that, you'd be like, yeah, 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 you say that every week. You're paid to say that, pastor. That's how you get your money, you're saying that to us every single week. And it becomes to be kind of white noise. I repeat it often intentionally because I really believe it's true and I want to press you into it, but that's the problem with often repeated things. They can become white noise. 
But today what I wanna do is I wanna say this to you, and this is our big idea. I want you to own this. I'm gonna show this, how true this is to you. I will believe that Jesus is the answer to the problems of my life. I will believe that Jesus is the answer to the problems of my life. So all you gotta do, so yeah, it's common. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. But hey, when that tragedy hit you, where did your heart actually go? Not where it's supposed to go. When it happened, where did it actually go? when you felt the strain of that relationship? Where did you tell your heart to go for hope? What did you do in that moment? Was it running to Jesus? When you feel the weight of your own guilt and shame, what do you do? Where do you run? And I wanna say to you, it's one thing on a Sunday morning to hear again a pastor say, Jesus is the answer to the problems of your life. It's something else entirely to actually live in it. So what I wanna do as we close this sermon out, I wanna talk about how Jesus really is the answer and show you in scripture how every one of these relationships is fixed by Jesus. I mean, look at that list again. How many problems of your life are summed up in one of those four relationships? Like nearly all of them can be fixed when these relationships get fixed. So let's fix them by running to Jesus. So here it is. Jesus is the answer. And write this down first because Jesus brings me close to God. We're gonna take those now in reverse order because I think you gotta fix your relationship with God first. So let's get that fixed. And then we'll go out and show you how Jesus can be the healing to all of these relationships. So first of all, understand Jesus brings me close to God. Now here's a beautiful verse. I love this verse. I want to show it to you this morning. 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Church, read it with me. That he might bring us to God. Isn't that beautiful? He put the death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He suffered for your sins. And he did it for a reason. Listen, do you see that? There's a reason why he suffered for sins. And it was to bring you to God. So that you can live today close to God. And you can wake up tomorrow and you can be close to God. I think what we want to do, and be honest with me, what we want to do is we want to say, okay, I got to get some things fixed first. I gotta get this down. I gotta get better self-discipline. I gotta get this. I gotta get this. I gotta get this. And then God will be pleased and then God will be happy with me. And you're missing the point. Christ suffered for your sins. and He did it one time. And on the cross, he said, say it with me, it is finished. All you need to do is to believe in that death and his resurrection and call on him and he'll bring you right to God, and you can be close today. I don't care how much sin you have stacked up in your history today by calling on him based on his death and his resurrection, you can be close to God. And even if you're a believer this morning and you've wandered away from God, would you believe again that he's covered all that wandering? It's interesting that we sang the song, Come Thou Fountain, today. There's a beautiful story in that song. 
The story is of uh, Robert Robertson who wrote that song and he was a pastor in England and he wrote the first three stanzas of that song and then after that third stanza, he, I mean, after the, that time in his life when he wrote that, he really fell away from the Lord. He left the ministry. He ended up a drunkard. And one Sunday morning, he's waking up in a cab back in the day, a horse-drawn cab, and someone's walking out of church and they're singing, Come Thou Fount. And uh, he says to the cabbie, hey, I wrote that song. And the cabbie said, whatever, governor. I'm assuming he was in England. <sighs> And uh, didn't believe him. And so then he came back and he wrote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because we have that tendency. And uh, I want you to know you have a God you can come to and he'll bring you to him. So here's another verse. This is uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then list, look, watch this. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You're far away from God, Jesus died for your sin, and so now with confidence, with boldness, we come before God and we find grace and mercy to help in a time of need. That's why James could say in uh, James 4, 8, draw near to God, church, and he will say it with me, draw near to you. That's what our God does. Jesus fixes our problem. Jesus brings us close to God. When your heart feels distance from God, run to Jesus. But also this, Jesus abolishes my guilt and my shame. So yeah, the cross fixes my relationship with God and brings me near to God again, but Jesus also abolishes my guilt and my shame. So Jesus heals my relationship with myself. So here's another one of those often repeated verses that I say all the time, but let me give you a little more context to help us see it a little differently. This is 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, read it with me, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, that's awesome. But, but it's, it's good to see it in context because the world's answer to your sin, your guilt and your shame is to deny it's really true. You don't need to feel guilty, it's your mom's fault. You don't need to feel guilty, it's the environment you were brought up in. Now, I think your mom has something to do with how you act and think, and your environment does have an impact, but you are the one who are, are, who's, who's guilty. And so it's not a matter of saying, no, I didn't really sin. No, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth's not in you, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. In the gospel, I don't deny my guilt, I confess it. Then I am forgiven. Colossians 3, or 2 says this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a life together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailing it to the cross. He 
He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is our God. Come on now. My guilt, gone. My shame, gone. Not because I'm innocent, but because I'm forgiven. Jesus is the answer. Jesus heals my relationship with myself. Also this, Jesus heals my broken relationships. Jesus heals my broken relationships. So many verses on this, and here's, by the way, one of the things I like about the illustration, the, why I put it in the sermon today, is do you see how the further we go along, the bigger the cross becomes? And it's not because the cross didn't start big, it did, but the cross has to take up more and more and more of our thinking. The cross has to take up more and more place in our hearts and more and more application to real life. Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, here it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. The cross can heal my relationships. I can forgive because Christ has forgiven me. And here's reality. There are no lasting relationships without forgiveness. Do you know this? Let me pause it for a second. There are no lasting relationships without forgiveness because every relationship is gonna experience sin given long enough. Someone's gonna sin against somebody. And if a relationship is going to last there's gonna have to be forgiveness. There are no lasting relationships without forgiveness, but listen, church, there is no lasting forgiveness outside the cross of Jesus. But in Christ, there is forgiveness. Listen, I can forgive because I have been forgiven. I can love because I have been loved. I can be long-suffering because he was long-suffering with me. And if I live in the gospel, I can pour out the gospel, and the gospel heals my relationships. Jesus fixes my broken, broken relationships. And then, of course, this, Jesus heals my broken world. Jesus heals my broken world. Again, we're living between the already and the not yet of this, but... Do you see how huge the cross has to become? It fixes my relationship with God, with myself, with others, and even creation. Because sometimes creation hurts, and sometimes the effect of sin are hard to understand and to deal with. But church, it won't always be this way. There is a coming redemption. Look at this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We saw that verse earlier. But look at the next verse. And not only creation, but we ourselves were the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And all people over the age of 45 said, amen. Our bodies are groaning, but church, there is a coming redemption. And Revelation reveals that to us. 
Then I saw the heavens open, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth shall pass away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is a coming redemption of all of the world, and there will be no more disease, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no more pain. Why? Because of Jesus. So as you experience these things and your heart goes to bitterness, why would a good God allow that? Remember, it was our sin, and he sent his son to pay for that, to fix it all, and it will be fixed, and it will be fixed soon. Today, I'm after your heart. I'm after where your heart's gonna go tomorrow when you experience the trials of life. Maybe the trial's coming from creation. Maybe the trial's coming from a broken relationship. Maybe the trial's coming from your own sin and maybe the distance you feel with God. And here's what I want you to do. When those things happen, don't go anywhere else for help. Go to Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, Father. Thank you that the effects of sin, though many, the effects of sin, though great, there is one simple solution to that one massive cause, and that simple solution is your son on a cross. And you did not hold him back. You did not keep him from us, but you gave him freely so that we can experience grace and redemption even now. And we long for the coming redemption of eternity to be with you forever. And we'll give you the praise for all these things, and we'll turn to you every day in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.